If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2. We'll look at verses 12 through 17. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. We would likely acknowledge that there are just places in the world, perhaps even places in our state or in our region, that are more difficult to do ministry than others. There are, for most pastors, places they would rather not be assigned by the Lord. I have a handful of them in mind this morning, places, locations. I have at times fervently prayed that God would not send me. And for the sake of the innocent, I'll withhold the details, right? You would even look to certain parts of our country, certain parts of the world, and assign a certain assessment that there, there is great unrighteousness or perhaps even difficulty in ministry. But Jesus goes beyond just a basic bad impression to make reference to the city of Pergamum as the throne of Satan, the place where Satan lives. The idea here is that the church at Pergamum is living in close proximity to a great deal of immorality, unrighteousness, and idolatry. The problem with living in such a context is that unrighteousness has this gravitational pull. It's always tugging at the hearts of those within its proximity. It seems that the closer you get to evil, the stronger the gravitational pull of said evil proves to be. Jesus describes the city of Pergamum as a difficult place to do life, a difficult place to do ministry. Yet there are some who have proven faithful unto death. Antipas, who becomes sort of the paradigm or the model for life and ministry, what it looks like to be a faithful witness until death, is killed in the city of Pergamum in the place where Satan lives. Yet there are those who have succumbed to the gravitational pull of evil who have made concessions in their life, seeking to accommodate the culture and the paganism of the culture, they have mixed and mingled their worship of Jesus with the worship of various pagan gods, at least, if not by word, by practice. Jesus gives something of a proverb in the Sermon on the Mount. It's stated in principle, but it applies universally as a proverb. He said, you cannot love both God and money. The reason for this is that both God and money have a tendency toward mastery. God's desire is to be the master of your life. Jesus is not interested in being one among your many priorities. He will be master of your life, but he will not suffer a secondary place in your life. In the same way, money has a tendency toward Mastery, you've observed this perhaps in your personal experience. And again, the Proverbs universal application is a note to us that there are all sorts of objects and hobbies and practices and interests in our life and experience that have this tendency toward mastery. Some of you over the coming weeks and months will be mastered by your favorite college football team. Others will be mastered by other hobbies, likes, and interests. All of which may make good hobbies, but they make for terrible gods. What the passage makes clear is that there is no room for accommodating the culture or dividing our allegiance when it comes to the worship of Jesus Christ. 
We're invited, as the church at Pergamum is invited, to give our undivided attention to the message of the gospel and our undivided allegiance to the God of the Bible. A word of warning is issued in our passage that if we've begun to make certain accommodations, certain concessions in our life, if we've come to syncretize our worship of Jesus with the things of this world, we ought to make haste in our repentance. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Revelation 2 and verse number 12. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says... I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you're holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality." In the same way, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I'll come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Like each of the seven cities that are listed here in Revelation 2 and 3, the city of Pergamum holds a place of some prominence in Asia Minor during the latter part of the first century. In fact, the city had held a place of prominence for centuries and would continue to hold a place of prominence for centuries after. Pergamum was, for a season of history, the capital city of Asia. It was just that prominent a city. It was known for a variety of reasons, but there are three ways that perhaps are the foremost reasons for Pergamum's notoriety. The city was itself at the forefront of learning in the first century. The city of Pergamum was home to a library that was second only to the library in Alexandria for its size and scope. More than 200,000 volumes lined the shelves of the Pergamum Library. This in a time when there was no printing press. Everything was handwritten and most everything was contained in a scroll format. 200,000 written works. Now because of that, the city itself became a hub for learning and for research. In fact, later in history, Mark Antony would give possession of the Pergamum Library into the care of one of his mistresses. So the library itself holds a significant place in ancient history, even outside of our study of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. So it's at the forefront of learning and of research. It's also at the forefront of, of science and medicine. There was a temple in the city of Pergamum that was given over to this Greek mythological god that took the form of a snake or a serpent. And that may be in view, as Satan himself has made reference to, as the serpent later in the book of Revelation. You're familiar, if not with the name of this God, with the imagery. 
If you've ever wondered why there are two intertwined serpents on the outside of an ambulance or featured on the outside of a hospital, that derives from this Greek mythological figure of a serpent that brings about healing. They would go into the temple and lie themselves down on the floor with these non-venomous snakes crawling over them in the hopes that they would fall into a trance in which it would be revealed to them the steps that needed to be taken to be healed of their sickness. Now, frankly, I would rather die than lay around with snakes crawling all over me, but that's perhaps a discussion for another day. Perhaps the second greatest known physician in ancient history, Galen, was from the city of Pergamum. It was a city of, of great import with regards to medicine and to healing that attached to this Greek mythological figure and the worship of pagan gods within the city. In addition to that, it was home to one of the largest temples to Zeus, who was sort of god of gods when it comes to the Greek pantheon. In fact, there was a throne where Zeus was said to be seated in the temple to Zeus, which some would equate to Satan's throne as it's referenced in the verses that we just read and will read again in the moments to come. The base of that great throne, it was the highest point on, on the Acropolis in the city of Pergamum, and the base was 400 feet long. It featured itself this frieze that depicted this great battle between the giants of Greek mythology and the gods of Greek mythology, and it was a work of artful masterpiece. And for that reason, Pergamum found its place not just at the forefront of learning and research, not just at the forefront of science and healing, but also at the forefront of arts and culture. Now, in each of these three fields, their world was in orbit around the worship of various gods. And in addition to that, Pergamum was one of the hubs. It was a central city with regards to the worship of Caesar as God. In fact, there's all kinds of inscripted language in the city of Pergamum that seems something as a, a point of opposition or a counter to the claims of the gospel. The inscription in the temple of Zeus that says that Zeus is Savior. Inscriptions in the temple of imperial worship that say that Caesar is Lord. And at every turn, the book of Revelation inviting us to swim against the tides of the culture, to persist in our testimony that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord, and that Christ, not Zeus, is our Savior. Jesus is again in this passage inviting us that we would be faithful witnesses until death, regardless of the circumstances of our life, even in a crooked, perverse, and hostile generation, continue faithfully swimming against the tide of the culture, insisting that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man may come to the Father except through him. Now, it's into this context that Jesus addresses the church. He addresses himself first in verse 12 as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, you might read this and think that this is a frightful way of envisioning Jesus. This is an image that's intended to invoke fear in us. And certainly there's a place for a healthy fear of God. But the church needn't be fear a savior with sword in hand. Because he is, after all, our Savior. It's those who have opposed the things of Jesus that ought dread. 
In fact, the church is encouraged by the notion that Jesus has the sharp double-edged sword. An indication that Jesus is in our midst, walking in the midst of the lampstands, and he stands ready to fight for us. It's this martial, militaristic imagery that's being used again in Revelation, a reminder to us of the nature of the warfare in which we are engaged. This reference symbolically to a sharp and double-edged sword does not intend that Jesus will come and literally draw the sword and physically cut down his enemies, but that with the word of his mouth, he would declare a word of judgment against them, and the fierceness of that word would be sufficient to bring to pass those who had come under Jesus' judgment. It's also a reminder to us again of the nature of our involvement in the warfare. That it's not with carnal weapons that we wage this war. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of the air. Our weapons are spiritual, not carnal, for tearing down these strongholds and seeking the advancement of his kingdom. The way we win the war, as it's modeled in our passage, is by our faithful witness We never concede. We never back away. We never let go of the message that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. That he is the gate. That he is the way, the good shepherd. That no man can come to God except through Christ. That he alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. This is the way the battle is won. The tendency of mankind is to rattle our spears to draw our swords, to bear our weapons. Anytime we hear of even the church being imposed upon, the physical freedoms of someone being robbed of them, the disadvantaged being pushed around or bullied in some way, the natural response of every red-blooded human being is to retaliate, to seek vindication, to move, to do something, to rescue the disadvantaged or oppressed. Jesus reminds here that the kingdom is advancing in much, much different ways. Even in the hours leading up to the cross, Jesus would inform the disciples, if my kingdom were of this world, I would have dispatched a legion of angels. But that is not the way my kingdom advances. Nor is it the way the kingdom advances in our day and age. We don't make the kingdom go forward by shaking our fist or insisting on the rights or observances of our rights and privileges, but by faithfully testifying to the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. There's no unseen symbolism about the idea that Satan's throne is in Pergamum. Satan is certainly not limited to the city of Pergamum. There's no special demonic presence in the city of Pergamum along the lines of what might be imagined in charismatic circles of those who are given to fascination with demons and spirits and things of the like. Satan's throne is simply where evil is localized, where there's a density of being given over toward the things of Satan, the worship of gods which cannot save. If we were to state what Jesus says here in verse 13, sort of colloquially, we might say, I know, where you, I know where you live, and I know it's hard there. I know there are very real challenges to your faith in Jesus where you are. If we were to contextualize what Jesus says here and put it on, in our own terms, we might say, I, 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 know, 
know some of the challenges that you face on an everyday basis. I know there's the constant barrage of imagery that's meant to entice towards sexual immorality. I know there's the consistent pressure of your peers to do things that are ungodly. I, I know there's the awkwardness that comes with living in a culture that would ostracize and marginalize those who would truly believe in the message of the Bible. I know where you are, and I know it's hard. And into that context, Jesus is saying, persevere, persevere, and be faithful. It, it doesn't become for us a justification for drift or an excuse for succumbing to temptation, but reason all the more that we would gird ourselves with righteousness and press toward the finish line, faithful unto death. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you're holding on to my name and didn't deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. You've held fast, you've persevered, there's the threat of death and of persecution and you're holding on even in the days when Antipas himself was killed, my faithful witness. Now, there are literary signs in the verses that we're reading that are flashing toward Antipas as the prototype for Christian faith. If you want to know what it looks like to take up the cross and follow after Jesus, look no further than Antipas. In fact, Jesus describes this gentleman as the faithful witness. What's interesting about that is that it's the very language assigned to Jesus in Revelation 1 and verse number 5. This is one among those flashing signs saying, look to Antipas. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully, to lay down your life confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, If you'll let this sort of ooze down into the cracks and crevices of your heart, this is a sobering reality. It is at least an incredibly countercultural reality. And for some, even those who might identify themselves as Christian, it is an altogether unacceptable reality. That what Jesus has called us to is to outright deny ourselves and to embrace the emblem of death, acknowledging that for us, Apex of life will not be found on this side, but in the resurrection that can only come in Jesus. Are y'all with me this morning? If, if you have bought in to the delusion that our existence is about the accomplishment or fulfillment of the American dream, that getting comfort, that getting affluence, that living with ease is where it's at for us, you have been sorely deceived. For what the gospel has invited us to do again is to take up the cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Antipas, referred to here as the faithful witness, is a way for Jesus to indicate, here is one who has followed the pattern. Your cross is not a mother-in-law that's on your nerves, or neighbor that's grinding, or whatever nominal frustration you may find yourself dealing with today, that statement from Jesus is an invitation that we would quite literally die to ourselves. And in my estimation, there are a lot more people willing to pop off about their ability to die to themselves and to die for Jesus than there are in reality those who are willing to do it.
lot of loudmouth Christians in the Western church far more willing to kill for Jesus than to die for Jesus. And the proof is in the reality that scarcely do we find followers of Jesus who are willing to die to themselves, let alone die for the advancement of the kingdom. Look to Antipas, Jesus says. Another flashing light pointing to Antipas as a model for us to pattern our experience after is the fact that apart from Jesus and John, Antipas's name is the only proper noun name in all of the book of Revelation that is not symbolic. You have some proper noun names later, but they're used symbolically. They don't have reference to an actual person, but stand as representatives of, of a group or a handful of individuals. But here Antipas is highlighted. It's, it's almost disjointed. This is not the kind of thing that you ordinarily do in apocalyptic literature. But Jesus would set this Antipas, the faithful witness, one who would die for his faith in Jesus, set him forward. He puts him on something of a pedestal here in chapter 2 to say, this is the paradigm by which we live. This is the model for you. If you want to know what it means to take up the cross, look no further than Antipas, the faithful witness. Jesus describes him as one who was killed among you where Satan lives. This is not a church without issue. Verse 14 notes, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. The reference here is to Numbers chapters 22 and following. This is during that period of Israel's history when she as a nation is wandering for 40 years in the wilderness for her disbelief or her unbelief. God condemned a generation to wander in the wilderness before the following generation would enter into the promised land. But even in her wilderness wanderings, even under the judgment of God, God was providing in supernatural ways for the nation of Israel. A pillar of cloud by day to give them cool and comfort in a desert climate, a pillar of fire by night to enable their travel in the evening in a desert climate, manna from heaven to serve their hunger, water from a rock to serve their thirst, God was with Israel. And even along the way, victory over many of the enemies that Israel as a nation would encounter. Numbers chapter 22, the people of Israel are drawing near the territory of the Moabite people, drawing near what, what became known as Moab. And Balak, the Moabite king, was concerned at the threat the Israelites posed because he had heard of the victory Israel had enjoyed over other nations, over other city-states in the previous years. And so he dispatches, he sends for Balaam, the prophet of God. And for a handsome sum of money and influence within Moab, he invites or entices Balaam to prophesy a word of judgment against the people of Israel. And initially, Balaam gets it right. He says, you know, Balak, I don't write the news. I just report it. It's not up to me to contrive, to invent, or to imagine a message. It's God's message. He gives a word, and I give it to his people. That's how prophecy works. I would add to that. That's how preaching is supposed to work. But there's this cycle of Balak going back to Balaam, inviting him each time, to do again what would be the undoing of the people of Israel, and each time with a higher degree of influence promised or a higher payment being made in turn for Balaam's service. And eventually, Balaam reveals to Balak, I, I can't, there's nothing I can do 
to manipulate the message. It's not my word, it is God's word. But I can put you on to some pointers. If you can entice the Israelites to sin against their God, the outcome will always be the outcome you desire. If the people of Israel will sin against their God, they will compromise their standing with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God would move his hand of power and protection so that the Moabites might overcome them. The Israelites will fail in battle apart from the power supplied by the God of the Bible. And the way Balak went about doing this, even as he was instructed by Balaam, was by parading Moabite women out before the men of Israel. And enticing them to the sin of sexual immorality. In other words, what Balaam instructed Balak to do was to get Israel to intermingle itself with the people of Moab. And in doing so, compromise the power and the presence of God among them. Just get together with the Moabite people. And what you'll do is, in your immorality, you'll distance yourself from the power and the presence of God. Look on into verse 15. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I take in the same way to be an indication that the sin of the Nicolaitans runs along the same lines and themes as the sin of Balaam as described in the previous verse. This is the most substance we ever get in the Bible with regards to who the Nicolaitans were or what the Nicolaitans did. But... The two references to the Nicolaitans come here in the letter to Pergamum and in the letter to the church at Ephesus. Both central to the worship of Caesar as God in the Roman Empire. In fact, they were worshiping Caesar as God in the city of Pergamum before many other cities in the Roman Empire. They virtually invented ways of worshiping Caesar as God. And it seems that in this context, at least my impression is that the Nicolaitans were instructing the church or teaching the church that you could create some harmony between your worship of Jesus and the worship of Caesar as God. You can just imagine the rationalizations or the justifications for such maneuvering. These Romans don't really believe that Caesar is God. It's just a cultural thing. What harm could it do? We know that these aren't real gods. We could go down to the temple and we could eat of meat, sacrifice to idols, and we could participate in the celebration. We'll be exposed to some degree of immorality, but after all, what harm could it do? And there even seems to be some degree of effort on the part of some in the latter part of the New Testament of, of distinguishing between the inner spiritual life and the activities of the physical man. This is the issue in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John at a number of points along the way. John, who is writing the book of Revelation, writing to the church in Ephesus in close proximity to Pergamum, and right there in the area uh, of the church addressed in the beginning of chapter number 2. We're going we're to be saved on the inside, but we're going to separate that, and we're going to regard it as something altogether different from what we do physically in terms of the activity that we undertake to do. There, there is no real distinction. When the gospel of Jesus Christ gets into your heart, it infects and influences every thought that you have, every decision that you make, every step that you take. All of the actions that you undertake are to be influenced by the message of the gospel. No such distinction can exist. So it appears that like those who had given themselves to the teaching of Balaam, 
those who were on board with the teaching of the Nicolaitans sought to accommodate the culture as they held on to their worship of Jesus. The problem yet again is that Jesus is not interested in being one of the gods you worship, but being the Lord and the God of your life. We engage this kind of thought, this kind of thinking all the time on the mission field. We have ongoing work in South Asia and in South Asia and for that matter East Asia and other parts of the Asian continent. You will interact with those who have a pluralistic understanding of God. There are many gods. We worship many gods. This is often the response that you'll receive. And as you begin to share about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is one true and living God, his son, Jesus is one with the Father in essence and salvation can only come by his blood. You will quickly find that there are many who are ready to embrace Jesus as another God in the pantheon of gods they worship. But this is an unacceptable outcome, and it is an unacceptable practice, because Jesus has never been, nor will ever be, one among many gods. He is the one true and living God, and he will be worshipped as such. He will never suffer second place or even a tie for first in the human experience. He alone is worthy of our worship and our praise, and he will settle for absolutely nothing less. When it comes to making these kinds of concessions, the Nicolaitans and Balaam, Jesus says in verse 16, therefore repent. Now, it's easy for us to look at that South Asian or Eastern Asian experience, experiences in pluralistic societies and say, well, that's altogether wrong. Even as I was describing that, offering that illustration, you were analyzing and you were identifying the problem with that kind of response to the gospel. But we have concocted in the Western world sophisticated ways of doing and rationalizing the very same thing, of establishing habits, practices, hobbies, and interests that take the place of religion in our life that are competing for our affections, even with the one who bled and died for our sin. It makes no difference if the idol of your heart is this external thing of wood or stone or precious metals, or if it's an idol you've established in your heart and mind, some activity, some hobby, or as is often the case, yourself. Jesus will not suffer partnership in his lordship over your life. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. We should note something at this point about the way Satan's place is described. Pergamum as Satan's throne, the place where Satan lives. The idea here is that Satan is ruling from earth. He's there in Pergamum. He might rule from other places. He is actively at work in the world, prowling about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There's no hidden symbolism there, as we said, but there is a note of reminder to us that his place of activity, his place of influence is here and not in heaven. And a reminder further to us that Jesus bears all authority in heaven and on earth. Although Satan is bearing influence in our passage, he is well beneath the feet of the one who bled and died for us. 
Some see the book of Revelation as this, constant, this cosmic battle between good and evil, and Satan takes some casualties along the way, but in the end, God wins. Nothing could be further from the picture being painted in the book of Revelation. The message of the book is that the battle is over and the victory has been won. And Satan may be suffered a bit longer in this world, but in the end will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Jesus is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Nothing could be clear in the book of Revelation. Repent, Jesus says in verse 16. Otherwise, I'll come to you quickly fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You catch the pronoun shift? Repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's a bit of the separation of sheep and goat. Wheat from the tares, right? I will come to you. Jesus, who walks in the midst of the lampstand, says, I'll come, I'll come to you into the midst of the church powerfully and perhaps in observable ways. And I'll bear the sword of judgment against those who say they are of the body but are not. I'll come and powerfully and painfully sanctify and consecrate my church. I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Some, some stranger walked into your home with a sword. I suspect it would be a frightening experience. But when Jesus walks into the midst of his church, sword drawn, it is a soothing sight for those who have loved him and been bought by his blood. Verse 17, the Bible says, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, Jesus' message to Pergamum is good for the other six churches, even as his message to those six churches is good for Pergamum. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. This is continuing to use the imagery of the wilderness wanderings that was evoked in the idea of Balak and Balaam. That was in that 40 years of wilderness wandering when God provided supernaturally for his people manna from heaven and water from a rock and quail from meat. God just provided in all these ways. Now the temptation is that they would succumb to the gravitational pull of these pagan temples and pagan, uh, pagan festivals and celebrations, gatherings within the city of Pergamum where they would dine on fine meat and they would enjoy the best of drink. Jesus, is prom Jesus promises here that for the victor, he'll give heavenly bread, that Jesus would provide for the needs of his people in ways that by far exceed the buying power of the city of Pergamum. Jesus says, I'll give you something far better than you'll ever find in the pagan temple. I'll give you something far finer than anything you'll ever enjoy in the city of Pergamum. For the victor, I will give bread that comes from heaven. He says in the next sentence, I'll also give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. There is a sense in which the detailed meaning of what Jesus intends in that last sentence is lost on us just by virtue of the passing of time and cultural distance. But there are a few things we can know about the sentence itself. In the first century Roman culture, a white stone was commonly a way of making reference to a couple of things. 
One, in the localized games and even in the grander games that would happen in these urban hubs, the forebears of the Olympic Games as we know them, and even in some gladiatorial contests, to the victor, not only would he be given this leafy crown of foliage, which we dealt with a little bit last week, Jesus sort of takes a shot at this leafy uh, crown of foliage. I'm not going to give you some junky perishable, withering crown, I'm going to give you, if you overcome, the crown of eternal life. In addition to the crown, the victor of each game or each series of games would be given a certain kind of white pebble. And that white pebble would function for him as a ticket to the Festival of Champions. The grandest gathering in the city of Pergamum or whatever city was playing host to the games at that particular moment in time. I'm, I'm going to give you, Jesus says, access to the festival of champions. And in this instance, it by far exceeds anything that might be enjoyed in the context of any game you've ever observed. I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who has seen it. It was also used in the process of a jury trial. Our modern-day jury trial in the American judicial system has some things in common with uh, the judicial system in the Roman Empire. You, you would get two stones, and you would cast a black stone for a guilty verdict, and you would pass a white stone or cast a, a white stone for a not guilty verdict. And the stones would be counted, and judgment would be rendered. It may be that Jesus is indicating that on the day of judgment, for those who overcome, a not guilty verdict will be passed on the basis of his authority. If that is indeed the case, we might even go beyond that to note that it's better than a not guilty verdict that is passed. We have assigned to us righteous and holy and blameless, not because of deeds that we have done, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus. At a minimum, what's being described here is that Jesus is going to grant access, access perhaps to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the giving of this white rock to those who are ultimately the victor. And on the stone, the Bible says here, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. In the next few weeks, I would almost bet you, if I weren't a Baptist preacher, someone's going to ask me. They're going to have missed Labor Day weekend, and they're going to say, can you tell me what the name is that's written on the stone? And here's going to be the answer. No one knows it except the one who receives it. You can't know what that name is. Jesus is pretty clear about this, right? But here's what we can know on the basis of Jesus's description. What's indicated in this idea of Jesus giving to an individual victor an individual invitation with his own individual name is that there's a personal and intimate connection between Jesus and the victor. This whole idea of a name, name, and identity, it's, it's all packaged together in the book of Revelation. Jesus is said at one point to have our name on him. We are said at one point to have his name on us. It's a way of saying Jesus identifies with us and we identify with Jesus. Take, for instance, the Mark of the Beast passage in the book of Revelation. And take the 666 on their right hand and on their forehead. This is not the idea that someone is literally writing 666 on their hand and 666 on their head. 
This is not the idea that you, you took a vaccine during COVID. This is not the idea you got stuck with a microchip. This is not the idea you got a social security number or an Apple iPhone or any of the other things that we've concocted over the course of human history. No one takes secretly the mark of the beast any more than we identify secretly with the sign of the Savior. The idea is that by virtue of our actions, our right hand, and by virtue of what we believe, the mark on our forehead, we either identify with Jesus or we identify with the beast. There's no great mystery in all of this. You will either by your faith and actions identify with Jesus or you will by your faithlessness and your unrighteousness identify with the beast. The idea of name in Revelation is about how we identify. And Jesus is personally identifying himself with individual victors, members of the body. There's an intimacy, a closeness, a connection that's existing here between Christ and those who prove over the course of time to be victorious by faith in Jesus. The victor, I'll give hidden manna, a white stone, a stone, a new name inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now take note of this. Even within the framework, within the context of Jesus addressing the church broadly, of Jesus addressing the church in general, he's noting that within that church are individual members and that the issue of your salvation is not a broad church issue. It is an individual issue between yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are anticipating that your participation in a faithful local church is somehow going to sweep you up in this great tide of salvation on the last day, you have greatly missed the mark. Your salvation is a personal, intimate relationship between yourself and the one who bled and died for you. If you have convinced yourself that somehow, some way, you're going to be swept up in the tide of your family salvation because your daddy loved Jesus or your grandma taught Sunday school, you have sorely misunderstood the nature of the gospel. There is a personal, intimate connection established between the Lord of all the earth and every individual subject who would bow the knee in faith and repentance, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every, every person personally responsible for what they ultimately do with Jesus Christ. Now, I, I wonder this morning, for, for some, and in, inevitably in a congregation like this, there must be some, who've never come to a point in time in your life of bowing your head and heart and asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins, believing in his name and his finished work on the cross. Are, are you out there? Are you, are you aware of your spiritual condition? Or have you, like so many, just assumed that given where you live and who you are and you go to church services and you celebrate Christmas and you do Easter Bunny stuff and all that stuff, and you believe in the existence of God, maybe you've assumed that that was satisfactory. But I want you to take note here that there is an, an intimate, personal interaction 
that must take place between heaven and your heart. The Bible says we believe in our heart unto righteousness, believing the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came from heaven, that he lived without sin, that he died as our substitute, that he rose again the third day. We believe in our heart unto righteousness, and we confess with our mouth unto salvation. That is, we say, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then there are those who've perhaps been through some kind of quasi-Christian experience and believe themselves to be right. Do you notice the quote? You know what Paul is doing in Romans 9? He says, we believe in our heart, we confess with our mouth. He's making certain that we understand that there must be a genuineness, there must be a, a sincerity about the confession that Jesus is Lord. Saying Jesus is Lord is not some incantation. Coming down an aisle, filling out a card, raising your hand in vacation Bible school. These are not magic potions that we declare over our life and then presume that everything is all right. There must be a depth of understanding about the gospel, the gift of faith being granted by God, arresting our soul and drawing us to Jesus. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. I wonder... By the discerning power of God's Holy Spirit, some might examine themselves this morning to find that they've never truly been in the faith. And I wonder that for the majority of us who are gathered here this morning as followers of Jesus, having truly been saved by the power of the gospel, having been filled by the Spirit and washed in the blood, if we wouldn't acknowledge this morning the gravitational pull of the world around us, that there's slippage in our life, Incrementally, bit by bit, step by step, and day by day, drifting away from the things of God and toward the things of this world. It happens insidiously. It happens like cancer, often before you realize it's present in the body. It's gone far too far to be removed. Brothers and sisters, I would warn you that you ought to be sober-minded in your assessment of self this morning. And if there's been any, any any effort whatsoever at making concessions or accommodating sin in your life, you had best repent because the day is coming when Jesus visits the church with a double-edged sword of judgment to separate the wheat from the tares and the sheep from the goats. There are no fence-walking hybrids, sheep-goat hybrids in the kingdom. There are just sheep and there are goats. Be careful what you give yourself over to. My prayer is that on this sleepy, somewhat dreary holiday weekend, Sunday morning after a late night of staying up far too late watching football games that proved to be not so good after all, that you wouldn't fail to heed the convicting voice of the Savior, inviting us away from the things of this world and into his warm embrace. Who has your allegiance this morning? Who has your affection this morning who do you really love with your very heart of hearts let's go to him in prayer father thank you for your word for its truth for these moments to spend together reflecting on your goodness your power your authority over our life god forgive us of the times that we succumb to temptation we're pressured by our peers to speak to act to walk in ways that are unbecoming of followers of jesus God, I I pray 
that when those actions, succumbing to temptation, are not out of character, but consistent with who we are in reality, that you convict us of that, that you would shape us and change us by your Holy Spirit. For those who are lost and separated from Christ, God, I pray that you would save them, sanctify them by your Holy Spirit. As we examine ourselves in this time of response, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to rightly discern where we stand. Help us, Lord, to behold your Son as the pearl of great price for whom we would give it all away. We ask it in Jesus' name.